All right, let's pray to get us started this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. As we study the life of Jesus, we learn so much about you and what you've done for us and who we are to be before you. We ask for your blessing as we look at this marvelous text this morning in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we've come to a place in Matthew's gospel that draws us really quickly to the central event of human history. So the time of teaching and instruction is over. Matthew 24 and 25 are the final teaching portions of the gospel, fittingly focused on the future and the return of Christ in glory when he's going to come to conquer the earth and set up his kingdom. So Jesus has had his say from the kingdom manifesto and the Sermon on the Mount way back in chapters 5 through 7, all the way through the Olivet Discourse, which we've been studying lately, Matthew 24 and 25. We've learned more in this little tiny book, these 28 chapters, and we're not even all the way through there. We've learned more about God and more about ourselves in just these, this one book than any library full of philosophers and world religions and stuff you'd, you'd ever learn. there's more here that's what a blessing is is that's how great God's word is it's expansive and brilliant and cuts deep so as we start to close out Matthew's gospel you might you might want to go back and actually read it all through again to get yourself back up to speed with us here Uh, maybe during the week do that before next Sunday and just realize afresh the incalculable greatness of this book and um you know, truthfully, some people only embrace the teaching of Jesus. They think that's enough. Well, if I follow his moral precepts, I'll be a good person, and whatever happens after I die will be fine. But you know what? The words are not enough uh, without the event that Matthew is leading us to. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, the word has no power in you. You can see it as some sort of a goal or a lofty idea, but without the death of Christ for sin, our sin... There's no foundation for God to grant us new life, a new birth, a new understanding. There's no no capacity to live Jesus' words in a meaningful way apart from this new birth that God promises to those who come to him. So the event is everything. The words are not sufficient. Christ's teaching leads us to the event, and that's where Matthew's taking us. So you can admire the words, but you can't be transformed by them as a principle unless there's a principle of new life literally put into you by God. So how does Paul say it? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, right? He's a new creation. That's what has to happen. You have to be in Christ. So you can't be a new, new man in Christ by thinking his words are great. That doesn't make you a new man in Christ. You have to be in a relationship with the risen Christ in your life. That's the way to have that. So right away, Matthew takes us from the words to the event, immediately reminding us of Jesus' impending death. So in verse 1 of chapter 26, it says, when Jesus had finished all these words, the last two chapters, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, so it's Wednesday, right? And the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion on Friday. It's probably helpful to remember that Jesus said this after he concluded his sheep and goats judgment and all that discussion, the way chapter 25 ends where he says, these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's not an accident that he says this right after that. So we're moving from word to event. And the event, everything now story-wise in the gospel will drive us to the cross of Jesus and then beyond that to the resurrection of Jesus and explain 
what it means as we go. So today's text, we're going to look down all the way through verse 16 here, launches us into that passion, uh, crucifixion, resurrection narrative. So the, there's several brief stories, four different little scenes that come. So on verse 1 and 2 is on the Mount of Olives. He's just finishing up the, uh, the message he just gave, and then he's talking to his disciples. Chapter, th- I mean, verses 3 through 5 takes place in the court of the high priest, Caiaphas. Verses 6 through 13 takes place in the home of a leper, a leper named Simon, who's hosting um, the apostolic band there in Bethany. And then verses 14 through 16 take place in the temple. So it's boom, boom, boom. You're going quickly through this uh, final days of Jesus' life. And if if there's a theme that ties these four events together, it would be the betrayal, the betrayal of Jesus. So if, if you like alliteration, which I never do, but I'll do it today. So uh, there's kind of four points here. There's four stories and four points. You've got the prophecy, a plot, preparation, and the payoff. You got those? Write those all down. Prophecy, plot, preparation, payoff. You got it. Okay, good. So all of it is advancing us to the sacrifice of the Son of Man. So in verses one and two, we have the prophecy, right, which we've already read. We remember that already in the gospel, Jesus has told his men that he would die at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And his first open prediction of that was way back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. And that's the very point when the gospel makes a big shift. We talked about it back then, however long ago that was. Where the gospel takes this dramatic turn in Jesus' life, moving away from the theme of his rejection to focus on his spending time preparing the disciples for their future ministry. And we talked about it at the time. That's when he made the first prediction. The second prediction of his coming death was in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. And then there's another one in chapter 20, verse 17 through 19. You remember those? So the prediction in chapter 20, verse 17 through 19 was given to his men while they were traveling to Jerusalem. So that wasn't long before this event right here we're talking about. And that said, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves And on the way, he said to them, this is 2018, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So now in chapter 26, verse two, he actually identifies the day in verse two. That's the Passover. So the Olivet Discourse, was given on Wednesday, he's gonna be dead by crucifixion on Friday. So it's just two days away. So immediately then, the scene changes to the court of the high priest, Caiaphas. In verse three, it says, then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. This is a meeting of powerful men, the chief priests, the elders of the people. The priest, of course, the high priest is the spiritual head of Israel. That's his position. At least that's what he's supposed to be, the spiritual head. This was a pretty political guy. At this time in Israel's history, the high priest was chosen by the Roman governor. So it wasn't a spiritual appointment. It was a political appointment. The choice was based on political calculations that pleased Rome, not spiritual ones. So Caiaphas was appointed high priest by Valerius Gratus in AD 18, and he held that office for another 18 years. That's a long time for a high priest. They don't usually serve that long, but this guy was a political animal, very astute, and he knew how to keep his office, and he lived that long. So we see in verse three that this meeting not only has temple representatives, but the tribal elders are there. Now, elders wouldn't typically be in Jerusalem, but what is it? It's 
Passover. So everybody's in town. So they have this meeting with everybody, all the leaders of the tribes and all the leaders of the temple and the priesthood. What were they discussing? Verse four, they plotted together, there's the plot, to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's what they're meeting to do. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So they're plotting for a way to get him and kill him after Passover is over and people have pretty much left town. They were concerned about his popularity, but they wanted him dead. Why would they want him dead? Well, he was a threat to their power and their position. We discussed earlier, he pretty much ran the temple during the whole Passion Week, this final week of his life. He definitely interrupted the best-selling season of the year, casting the money changers out of the temple and driving out all of their uh, money-making operations. And he bested them in the temple conversations in Matthew chapter 21, making them look like fools because they, they couldn't, these are the highest priests in the land and they couldn't, they couldn't say if John the Baptist was sent from God or not. They didn't know. They, they said they didn't know because they didn't want to get in trouble. It was a trick question. It was a real question, but it was kind of a, you got to fall one way or the other question. Jesus asked them and, well, we don't know. So he made them look like fools. But most significantly, a, an event happened that led the people to openly declare Jesus as the Messiah, something the Romans would lay at the feet of these political men, these high priest characters. So they didn't want that. To be on Rome's good side, you had to keep the peace. That was what they wanted, the Pax Romana. You keep the peace. You make sure we don't have any interruption in our flow of taxes or have to spare any extra troops to bring them down here to put down any revolts. You guys keep the peace and all is well. And so here's Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem, being hailed as the Messiah, the coming king to destroy the world powers. That could be a problem. So what caused him him to be hailed as the Messiah? Why didn't he just ride in the donkey and people say, hey, there's that Jesus guy on a donkey. Why, Why was he celebrated? Why was he brought in with such clamor and praise and loud and all those good things? Well, it's because of what happened in John chapter 11. Many people were in Bethany for a big funeral and witnessed Jesus raise a man from the dead. And that's just two miles from the gates of Jerusalem. So the word got out real quick. A man dead four days came out of the tomb In fact, John gives us the conversation at a a council meeting with the chief priests and the Pharisees. And after that happened, John chapter 11, verse 46, it says, Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done, the resurrection. Now, if I was a Pharisee, I'd run out there and say, Jesus, you must be the Messiah. But that's not how they thought, because they hated him. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. See, that's their, that's their concern. But one of them, Caiaphas, the man whose house Jesus is at, I mean, the, this, we're seeing in this scene here, who was high priest that year said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account what is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. 
He's saying, you guys, let's, we can make this happen real quick. We kill this one man and all of us are safe. The whole nation is safe. And then, and then John adds this. This is in John eleven fifty one. He says, now he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Isn't that interesting? And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. That's just fascinating. So here's Caiaphas, a completely worldly, politically motivated man, but who is appointed in this official position as high priest, and as that person, unknowingly, God speaks a truth through him. This one man has to die for the nation. Not in the way he intended, but for their salvation. It's expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. It was true. So God put those words in his mouth. It just blows me away. Anyway, humanly, the words were motivated by fear that Jesus' popularity could bring Rome's boot down on them. But uh, it had a much deeper meaning than that. So, the meeting we're seeing here in in Matthew chapter 26 is is a later meeting than the one in John chapter 11. So Passover, it's already happening. It's at its height. The city is packed with people who love Jesus. They have to act stealthily if they're going to take him out, so they decide to wait, not during the festival, lest a riot occur. They're not planning to take Jesus during Passover. They decide not to take Jesus during Passover. Now, Do you notice a conflict between their plan in verse 5 and Jesus' words in verse 2? There's a conflict. Jesus says he will be delivered up for crucifixion on Friday. That's actually Passover. That's not after the festival. That's at the peak of the festival. So now let me ask you a question. Just think about it for a sec. If Jesus Christ says something is going to happen and men say it's not going to happen because they have different plans, what's going to (laughs) happen? What Jesus says is what's going to happen, right? What's going to change their minds? It is going to happen on Friday. Well, it turns out this opportunity arises which will allow them to take Jesus by stealth during the festival an opportunity afforded them by one of Jesus' own disciples, a man named Judas. But before we get to Judas, we have one other scene. So the scene changes again to Bethany, of all places, where Lazarus was just raised four days before. And the story's really simple and it's beautiful, but there's a, a dark, there's a dark note in it. So verse 6 of Matthew 26. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? This perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. 
the whole world. That's pretty remarkable because when Matthew wrote this gospel, Christianity was just beginning. It was tiny. It was a tiny movement, not even certain from a worldly point of view that Christianity would even survive. It was heavily persecuted. And here we are, 2,000 years later, on a continent they didn't even know existed, remembering what that woman did. Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Matthew doesn't even give us her name, but we know her name because John identifies her in his gospel as Mary, the same Mary, the woman who received her brother back from the dead, Lazarus. So Mary, she's the one that we find at the feet of Jesus in that story I read earlier in the service in Luke. Mary, she's the spiritually sensitive one. We might call her Mary the misunderstood because she, she had her own way about her. It was a quiet way, but very deeply felt, a very deeply felt way of being devoted to Jesus. Remember, so when we saw that passage in Luke chapter 10 where Mary was taken as a shirker of responsibility by her sister, right? As she sat at Jesus' feet to learn rather than serve the guests. And Martha was serving and Mary was listening. She was listening to Jesus. And Jesus said Mary had chosen the better part. And at her brother's funeral, people weren't totally sure why she jumped up and ran out of the house all of a sudden, but they speculated among themselves that she was running to the tomb to weep more for her brother. But she was running to meet Jesus because she heard that he had arrived. And again, threw herself at his feet. And her tears made Jesus weep. Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible. So here in Matthew 26, she's misunderstood again. Her perfume's super expensive, almost a year's wages in a little 12-ounce container, and she pours the whole thing on him. Matthew says she poured it on his head, but John describes what she did after that. In John chapter 12, verse 2, they made him a supper there. Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So for this beautiful act of devotion, she's jumped on. Why this waste? Can you imagine the sorts of comments being made about her while she's there washing Jesus' feet, you know, anointing his feet and wiping them with her hair and, and uh, they're saying that stuff about it? Why this waste from this woman? That, that perfume could have been used for the poor. I mean, her family, it was a wealthy family. They, they, they had hosted the apostolic band in their home probably on numerous occasions. They were involved in feeding them, taking care of them. They were very generous to them, and here they are putting her down. Talk about tacky disciples. And by the way, while it seems like a number of the disciples chimed in on what was said to Mary, wasteful, you know, wasteful, John, the apostle who was there, tells us that it was one disciple that started this protest. It was Judas. Judas is the one. And John tells us why. Why would Judas care what she's doing with that? expensive thing. Well, John chapter 12, verse 4, it says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, already working that out, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? 
Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. What a winner. So Judas had the apostolic purse, the band of the apostles' purse. He was the treasurer of the purse, and he, he liked big amounts in there because he could take a cut. But he masks his mercenary motives in a cloak of concern for the poor. That's not an uncommon practice in ministries, by the way. I think you'd be shocked how many, how many uh, various ministries and their leaders fill their personal pockets trying to raise money for the poor or some cause. Uh, it happens all the time. It's really appalling. And it's very Judas-like to do that. Well, Judas is the same way. I, uh, I'm sure he justified his actions to himself, as people do, that, who feel that they're entitled to get more than they receive, right? They always justify it. And John suggests that Judas was already intending to betray Jesus, so he's, there's a reason why he's doing this stuff. He's an interesting figure. The Bible doesn't go deeply into the motives of Judas, but um, the fact that it doesn't do that opens all kinds of doors to kind of wild, crazy theories about Judas. One really kooky but very popular theory a few years back promoted a book by a, a guy named William Classen. He, he said he was a scholar of some kind. And he said Judas was actually in cahoots with Jesus to get him into a meeting with the Sanhedrin so he could tell them what he wanted to tell them, the great Jerusalem council, which is totally silly. Um, there's other kinds of ideas too that you see in popular books and literature and things like that. Jesus Christ Superstar. Judas is actually sort of the hero of that. And the last temptation of Christ, you know, Jesus, you know, Judas, you're the only one that really understands me. All the other apostles don't, but you do. We connect, you know. That kind of stuff. It's really popular. And anytime you have a culture that rejects the Bible, Judas becomes a hero. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? <laughs> Wonder why? Because we're all betraying Jesus and we got, we're heroic too. But Judas wasn't a good guy. He was a traitor. He wanted out. That's really the, the main thing. He wanted out. It's not hard to figure out why. Jesus keeps saying this stuff about his death. Messiah, the whole Messiah thing in Judas' mind is a bust, right? Jesus had a death wish and that was taking him to destruction and I don't need to be here for that. I might get caught up in that mess. So... He's thinking, I gave up three, over three years of my life and I've got nothing to show for it. And here's Mary pouring out a fortune on his feet. What a waste, he says. And on the inside, he's thinking, that 300 denarii, that, that could have been available for me. And Jesus is quick to rebuke Judas and the others. Mary was honoring him, he says. They, more than they were, she was very perceptive. She could tell from his words and his mood and how much he needed to be honored. And the disciples don't care about Jesus. They, they never do. If you read through the Gospels, they're, they're never like real concerned about him. You know, I mean, there's Peter says, you know, I, I will die in place of you and all that stuff, which he won't do. And uh, he does eventually, but not till later. But um, they, they don't think about Jesus' well-being very often. Look again at verse 10. It said, Jesus, aware of this, said, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And she poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly I say to you, whether this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Plainly, even from that text, you can tell that care for the poor was an important part of Jesus' ministry. It's assumed that that's what they do with their money. They dole out a lot of it to the poor. So that's normal for them. They didn't cling to a lot of extra funds. Jesus lived what he preached and he helped the poor. That's central to godliness and that's the way he lived. It's a true good. Giving to the poor is a true good, but it's not the only good. And that's what he's saying. There's other priorities too. And to honor him is the highest priority and sensitive, aware Mary gets that. He needs to be honored right now. And Jesus says there'll be plenty of opportunities to serve the poor. But Mary, just like before, she chose the better part. She honored Jesus in a manner worthy of him and what he was about to undergo. She's done a good deed to me, he says. So what she's doing is revealing her heart through her deeds, her devotion to Jesus, her consideration of his needs. They all reveal this great value that she placed on him. And the disciples seem way less in tune with what's going on, what's going on with him. They just kind of took Jesus' presence for granted. Well, he's, you know, he's Jesus and he's fine. And You just don't find them ministering to him. They're just not there yet in their thinking. But Mary, she's way ahead. She's way ahead of all the disciples. So there's no higher good that you can do than sincerely, earnestly honoring Jesus Christ your Savior and Messiah and King. There's nothing else you can do that's higher than that. And Mary knew that there was not going to be another chance in her life to minister to him directly. So you don't just find them ministering to him, uh, the disciples, but her, she's got it right in her, right in her heart. It's right there. So she honors him, not with pride, but with great humility. And like a servant, she gets on her knees and she anoints his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. This is a wealthy woman, and she's acting like a slave before him. How fitting and appropriate that her action was in view of what lay ahead. William Hendrickson, the Bible scholar, says, what Mary had done was right, beautiful even, for it was prompted by thankfulness of heart. It was also unique in the thoughtfulness it revealed. Moreover, it was regal, in its lavishness. And last but not least, it was marvelous in its timeliness. She did just the right thing. And so she'll always be remembered for that. Okay, we've seen the prophecy, we've seen the plot, we've seen the preparation, and now the payoff. Here it goes. So this incident with the perfume and the rebuke that Judas received from Jesus seems to have kind of pushed him over the edge. What a contrast between Mary and Judas. I mean, completely different people. The world has remembered her gracious act toward Jesus. What does the world remember about Judas? Well, it's like saying, you're a Benedict Arnold. Thank you very much. (laughs) People don't usually take that as a compliment. Judas's name is just associated with arch villainy. Well, he's, he's associated with that outside of Hollywood and academia. There he's a hero. But outside of that, he's always been an arch-villain. And he is that because he not only shows no faith in Jesus as the Messiah, he is a faithless friend. It's one thing to walk out and try to protect yourself because you're a coward. It's another thing to turn him over 
to sell him. So he betrays Jesus for money. And if he ever had noble aspirations in his heart, he, he cast them aside because his great desire, and it really shows you what his great desire always was, was personal advancement. He believes that Jesus has a death wish and this kingdom thing's not gonna happen. So he goes to the chief priests and his words are very telling. Verse 14, then one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me? to betray him to you. And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And then, from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. What are you willing to give me? Those are the words. He, he just wants out. And 30 pieces of silver, that's not a lot of money. That's a lot less money than what that perfume cost. But it's enough to cover his expenses for a while. It's a lot more than he got in Jesus' service, I'll tell you. I'm sure that's what he said to himself. He's not in the mood to negotiate for big sums. He just wants out, doesn't mind paying Jesus back for wasting his three years on a dream. Judas is sort of the epitome of uh, religious unbelief. He followed Jesus for what he could get out of him. He attached himself to a man he did believe was the Messiah, but not primarily for the Messiah's cause or for the Messiah himself, but what he would get out of it. That's, that was the heart of it. What kind of religion do you have? Do you, do you serve God or love God for God? Or is it just for the bennies, you know? The benefits you get out of it. He, Judas was invited into this special circle of the 12, and that meant... If Jesus set up his kingdom, that meant power and riches in the future, he was thinking. He's a, he's a classic political hanger-on guy, you know, the guy that presidents and kings always have to look out for, the guy that's only there for what he can get out of being close to you, not for you. And that's why leaders prize loyalty, because it's a pretty rare commodity, actually. So when Judas saw that he would not be the treasurer in the glorious kingdom of Messiah. When he saw that Jesus was on some kind of martyr kick, he just had enough. He had no faith. He had no trust. He didn't even love Christ. So, you know, being a Christian is not about us. It's actually about him. That's the heart of it. Jesus is the great omnipotent friend. He is that. God is a tender father to his children, but it's still all about him and his glory as it should be. He's the center of all things, the maker of all things. All things are summed up in him. We exist for him. He made us for him. He didn't make us so that he could be our God. He made us so we could be his people. So there's a difference there. Be sure you follow Jesus because, because he's worthy to be followed. Make sure that's why you follow Jesus, not for the perks you think you might get. And even when the other apostles didn't really understand what was happening, and even when they failed, like Peter does fail after Jesus' arrest, they, they loved Jesus. They were in it for Jesus. They were his men in their hearts. And we can't always understand what God is doing or why he's chosen a certain path for our life or a course that we have to deal with, but you have to trust him because it's about him. And he's there for us, but you've got to trust him with your life. The cross 
looked to Judas like an absolute end. But in God's plan, it was just the beginning. He didn't get all that. The cross is the foundation for God's redemptive plan for mankind, and Judas couldn't grasp it. And you know what? All of this worked for God's plan. Jesus was to die on Passover as the spotless Lamb of God. That was his mission. That was his purpose. He's the Lamb of God. He has to die on Passover. It was critical that he do it on that very day. The chief priests and the elders weren't going to do it on that day. They were going to wait because it was too risky. After the festival, we'll arrest him. And then Judas shows up. And Mark's gospel says they were glad to see him. Oh, hey, we can find out where he is at night. They changed their plans, all the while thinking only evil against Jesus. But God was in control of all of it for his purposes because he had to have Jesus die as the Passover lamb on Passover. So even the wicked conform to the rule of God in the world. He uses them. I like knowing that. And God is worthy of our devotion. So what are the two big takeaways today? Two things. God is in control of all things. He orders all events for his purposes. You can trust him with everything because he knows best and he's arranging everything for his divine purposes. And even when he corrects us or disciplines us, it's for our good. It's always for our good. So God is in control of all things. The second thing is that God is the center of all things. All good things, all good deeds start by honoring him first and foremost above everything else in the world. That's because it's right and true and good to give honor where it belongs to the one who deserves all honor. If you miss that, you start sliding spiritually. Mary's devotion to Jesus first is a model for Christian living. It's a model for ministry. So you should ask yourself, do I have Mary's kind of devotion to Jesus? That's the question. Am I sensitive to his desires for my life? Do I honor him as worthy of my special devotion? Does he truly have first place in my heart? He did for her, not for Judas. That's what we learn from Mary of Bethany. A heart like that, a heart like that is worth remembering till the end of the age throughout the whole world. That's how Jesus sees it. Remember that. Let's pray. Father, oh, that we have hearts like Sister Mary. Cast away all other things that we put before you and help us to give you the devotion and the trust that you deserve because you are above all things and you are glorious. We thank you and we ask you to keep our minds on you the way Mary kept her mind on you. In Jesus' name, amen.